this work takes time and love. And so if you're going to go for it, make sure you have those two things. This is episode 323 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, Christopher speaks with Diana Nucera of the Detroit Community Technology Project. The project is based in the Detroit community to bring better connectivity to residents, community organizations, and more recently, local businesses. In addition to establishing a community network, the DCTP provides technical support, trains local stewards to expand the program, and helps empower and unite the local community. Diana explains the history of the DCTP, how it works, and describes some of the challenges they've overcome. She also shares some of the unexpected benefits and describes how just getting people online is only one part of digital inclusion. Now here's Christopher with Diana Nucera from the Detroit Community Technology Project. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, talking to Diana Nucera today, the director of Detroit Community Technology Project. Welcome to the show, Diana. Hi, thanks for having me. It's really great to have you, uh, having someone from um, you know another strong Midwestern city, a, a city that's uh, um, you know recovering. Um, it's doing much better than it, it had been, and is filled with amazing culture and people. Um, but you know, let's talk a little bit about your organization, and then we're going to talk about some um, how it, how it's related to some other organizations and movements to make a little bit of a map, I think. But but what's the Detroit Community Technology Project? Sure. So the Detroit Community Technology Project uh, started in 2014, um, coming off of uh, basically the Broadband Technology Opportunity Program that was put out by, it was stimulus funds put out by um, the Obama administration that the Digital Justice Coalition in Detroit had gotten. And so our work spun off of that and is focusing on looking at um, how to support people in creating technology solutions that are rooted in the community um, and meet a community need. But like not only enhance um, our relationship with each other, but also the planet. And so we've been working on different projects from wireless communication systems to resilient organizing strategies, and then also looking into data and our rights around data and privacy and security. So all of those sort of fit into this, what makes a healthy digital ecosystem, which is what the Detroit Community Technology Project is most interested in. And and this is a part of a, a long chain of work in terms of trying to uh, give digital tools and, and really help um, people that have been left behind by the economy, by uh, by the existing power structure um, that's been going on for a long time. How, can you just give us a, a, a brief, maybe, you know, I don't know if it goes back 20 years, but but how does it fit into the Allied Media Project and things like that? Right. So to understand our work is sort of to understand the like, chain of events and not one thing leads to another. And then our work is very much forms as one thing leads to another. Um, so the story starts when the start of the Allied Media Conference and its move to Detroit in 2007, I believe, um, and sort of started uh, a media lab there, which the idea was 
thinking about um, what would a potluck of technology look like. And at the time was really thinking about access, not particularly in like who doesn't have access to the internet or like who doesn't have equipment, but thinking about like, why are we so protective over our tech and why does it create so much crime? And what if we created a space in which people were like willingly sharing these devices with each other and teaching and learning together, which at the time felt really radical for people. They were like, what do you mean? I'm going to leave my, my, my tech here with you at the AMC while there's hundreds of people around. When, when many of us think of technology, I think we think of opportunities, and you uh, linked it with, with crime. Um, and I also just want to note, people, you said AMC, which is the Allied Media Conference, uh, a wonderful event that, um, to my shame, I have not uh, attended because it's almost always at an inconvenient time of year um, for my schedule. So this is something that I think is, is really worth just noting so people have a sense of where you're coming from. This, these tools that have been developed, um, you know, they really haven't been a source of opportunity in the communities you're working in? I think they they have a potential to be, but for instance, if you are just given a sort of smartphone and using it to consume like social media or media, then you don't ever see the problem solving potential. And so what I noticed back in 2007, and at the time I was working in youth media, working with youth in Chicago, um, and sort of as a volunteer for the Allied Media Conference and thinking about this media lab. And I just remember like every time we would open up a lab or someone would get a new piece of technology, there was always some kind of like crime that would happen around it. So like many labs, got broken into and stolen a lot of the things got stolen or some youth would get jumped and their their phones would get taken or their computers would get stolen and so it became like really clear to me that and at the time that like it's not that people don't want these things it's just it's like scary to have them um and it's scary to have them and mind you this was when smartphones were a little newer so I think as technology sort of progresses, these issues um, become a little less because they become normalized and we're all walking around with our phones. When I remember walking around, like at the time, which was some rough spots in Chicago, you had a phone. It was similar to having like a pair of Jordans <laughs> back in the day when people would like take their shoes, you know, just to recognize that there's like within these different economic situations, technology can play a role of both solving a potential issue, but it also creates a sense of danger um, for people. So you have to, there's all this like security around it and, and trying to protect these assets. And I think I've been really interested in thinking about like, well, if we remove that element, like can you build community with technology rather than these individual sort of endeavors where people are protecting their own gear and, and only using technology for their own self gain. And that's kind of where this idea of a media lab came out of also like thinking about digital justice, which means that like not just access to people, but like what if we created a culture in which sharing technology and using technology to solve problems together, um, not just the techies coming in and supporting people, but like really using it as a tool for innovation on a community level and on, on a neighborhood level. Like, what does that look like and what can that do to revitalize a city? And so our work has sort of stemmed from that.
And that's that's really good context. I I did divert you a little bit from uh, the question that I'd asked and didn't let you answer it. Um, so uh, I want to get back into where you're leaving off, but just so people uh, have a sense of of a little bit more of the history. Um, so you mentioned the Allied Media Conference moves to Detroit in 2007. If you can walk me through briefly how that ends up in um, and leads to the Equitable Internet Initiative, the EII, that we're going to be talking more about, um, please uh, walk me through that. Sure, I will I will do the most abbreviated version I can uh, <laughs> for the sake of this medium, but it is a, quite a long story. And, you know, out of respect for the history of people involved, like, I'll do my best. Well, and I think just uh, just briefly, uh, this is well captured by a Roosevelt Institute study, I believe. Um, has it been published yet? I know I've reviewed it, um, but I don't know if it's been published yet. I don't think it has been published. Okay. It will soon be documented quite well. <laughs> so um, <laughs> people can uh, people should be on the lookout for that after I'm sure this interview will pique their interest. Yeah. So, you know, we started off with, like I said, the, the Media Lab and this idea of a potluck of, of technology and a space in which people can teach and learn together. That sort of was the birth of the pedagogy. Um, so the science and art of how we approach teaching technology emerged from that moment. Um, as the Allied Media Conference grew in 2009, we had a switch over in the um, federal government, and that's when Obama was now in power, and released these federal stimulus packages, and one of was the broadband adoption. So it was, a, it was a session in the Allied Media Conference in 2009, which I believe was called Building a Healthy Digital Ecology, led by Josh Breitbart that was looking at the ways in which communities could go after this federal funding to then build the, their systems that they need. So there's something that's been prevalent within all of this, all the years of this work is that technology infrastructure is often overlooked within city planning or any sort of kind of public development. It seems to be a private sector thing. So we were looking at how do you look at this federal funding to, to bring it into more of a public sector, like if people are sort of taking over and building themselves. So from there, we created a series, we won um, in, in the, the stimulus funding after developing the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition. And so that formed out of the AMC session. Um, the Digital Justice Coalition went on and said, hey, we can't apply for these funds if we don't know what people want or how they, how they need technology. So then learning from the media lab, um, we said, hey, let's create a uh, discotheque, which is short for discovering technology. Um, it's pretty fun. And the idea was to get all of the members of the coalition and their communities that they are connected with to create these sort of stations that allow people to teach and learn together because you can't enter into a conversation about what you need or want to use tech for if you don't know what it is or what it can do. And so that marks another point of truly understanding, like, how digital justice works. So we, have to, we have a pedagogy of, of sharing and teaching and learning together as a community. Then comes this, like, un understanding that education is at the core of participation, especially within this particular um, realm, within the digital realm in Detroit. That was around 2011 when we started looking at, we got... Um, the BTOP funding, and then built these programs um, called Detroit Future, 
And there's Detroit Future Media, Detroit Future Youth, and Detroit Future Schools, um, none of which are associated with Detroit Future City uh, that came after our success. The one I ran, which I'll speak about, is the Detroit Future Media. And the idea of broadband adoption was not getting people a connection um, to the internet, but showing people how to move from being consumers of media to being producers. So what if we all created online businesses or digital media to share campaigns and then move that from uh, the analog world as a community into the digital world as a community? So one of the best metaphors I like around this is sort of moving from this concept of the internet as an information superhighway to more of a neighborhood that has the equivalent of bike paths, parks, and public spaces. Um, and so we learned that, like, because of the sort of inequity within technology in general and, like, the structural racism that exists within Detroit, that it's very scary for people to go online. Um, it's an overwhelming place, and there's racism and sexism and all the stuff that exists online. So that's where we were like, if we come on together as a community, we can carve out the spaces that we need in order to really start to develop this online um, space. If you don't mind, Diana, let me just jump in for a second, because I think a lot of my listeners are probably coming from a place where they're not experiencing that on a regular basis. And I can immediately imagine that, you know, on tw on Twitter in particular, that we've certainly seen a lot of ugliness. Um, and in fact, people who change their avatar from a white man to a woman or particularly a woman of color, they certainly see a tremendous level of abuse they had never seen before. But I'm curious if there's other things in terms of discrimination that um, that, again, I probably wouldn't even be aware of that that come to your mind just to, to paint that picture for some listeners yeah i think gen gender violence is definitely something that comes to mind um when i think about like gamergate and the community anyone who actually like wanted to create a woman who wanted to create a new kind of gaming and there's literally groups that are formed to keep prevent you from doing these things so i think this happens within a lot of gender dynamics but then you have to consider like the internet is just is a reflection of the analog world. And so whatever issues you have in the analog world, so your day-to-day, -day, whether it be economic disparity or, you know, sexual racism or domestic violence, like all of that is just is reiterated online with just anonymous, sometimes people behind it. So if you're someone who's dealing with, like any of any of that stuff in your analog world, it's it's sort of like a myth, a myth that you would then go online and it would be a new life or a new space. Like it's like all of that exists within there. So mm -hmm. I don't want to boil it down to people's personal stories um, because it's, I don't have their consent to share it on this podcast. But to give you a generalized sense, I think that's the best way I can describe it is that it's like anything that we deal with as a society um, on the day-to-day -day is reflected on the internet and currently now I think it's easier to see because you have trolls you have like the election fraud that we've been dealing with and how the internet can be this sort of aggressive space and I mean just go on Facebook and see if anyone's ever like within two minutes I'm sure you'll come across an argument or some kind of put down or something. 
And so that is all very stressful and all very confusing when you've just entered onto the space that you've been told is has everything you ever need. You don't get told how to navigate the void of yelling that everyone is doing <laughs> or the yelling into the void that is also happening. So yes, you can learn how to build your own homes probably and plumbing or whatever. And there's so much tools online but there's all the social dynamics that are heightened because we're not face to face with each other. And I would almost say that the internet reflects like 10 times more our issues with, that are happening within the analog space because there isn't that face to face accountability. You could log off when you're done. Right. And so this is all really important because I think many of us naively or just too simplistically think, oh, our goal is to get people online. Uh, and that's one of the things that your project's been working on. But you've recognized that giving people a high quality Internet connection is not sufficient to get to the end state that we want, where people are empowered, people are, are having better outcomes. You know, kids have more opportunities in life and things like that. It's it's not just about the connection it's about making sure they're able to take advantage of it yeah and create their own with it because you know so much of our of the internet surfing is about consumption so what would what economic opportunities or social opportunities are there if you're online um and what can you create online and i think that's that's something that you know we looked at a lot in our detroit future programs was looking at broadband adoption not as receiving a connection or a skill in particular, but looking at all the possibilities of how the internet integrates within our work and our lives, and then working with others to really enhance what they're doing to then use the internet as a, an opportunity. Um, so for instance, a lot of our back in, back in the, the day for so long ago, uh, it was 2011 to 2013, um, was a lot of people built, you know, media for small businesses that were struggling in Detroit and looked at the opportunity of e-commerce as a thing, but they, they needed to tell their story. So like storytellers are extremely important. So media makers are really important in this ecology. Um, and looking at all those different components of the different roles people can play within creating a healthy digital ecosystem. And, and yeah, like you said, a, a connection or the wireless engineering is just one role. But then we surely realized how important that role is because once we got to the time when it was time to upload all of the, the media that we've created and taught people how to do, uh, we recognized very quickly that the infrastructure within Detroit was pretty lackluster and that a lot of people did not have connections. And then it was in 2013 when Bill Callahan came out with his piece on Detroit, revealing that 40% of Detroiters had no connection at all and 60% were without broadband. And at that point, we said, okay, well, now none of this, none of this media matters if there's no infrastructure. And so then we switched our, our direction to looking at the infrastructure of the internet, which um, we teamed up with the Open Technology Institute and learned a lot about mesh networking and eventually developed our own curriculum. And then the Detroit Community Technology Project was formed to specifically work on community, the birth, like the growth of community technology. So looking at it as fostering this movement from, from con consumer to producer with people 
looking at like infrastructure um, accountability. So looking at data and like, what do we need to be aware of and vulnerabilities around smart cities and stuff like that. And then um, developing a workforce of uh, wireless engineers that are, that are based in communities to build out their own infrastructure. And once we've had a few years of really working through that curriculum and those sort of programming, then the birth of the Equitable Internet Initiative happened in 2016. And that's when we finally actually began seeding our, uh, um, or incubating internet service providers, mashing it all together where you have network engineers that are from the community building out infrastructure. You have youth building applications that can live on these networks because they have an intranet as well as internet connections. And so everything sort of mashes together um, from the beginning of 2007 until today, thinking about once you have an infrastructure, all the responsibilities behind it, but also all the potential of modeling the type of digital world you want to see. So we're very, very excited about incubating these internet service providing companies within nonprofits that are practicing net neutrality, that are practicing consumer rights, and that are practicing privacy, security, and consent um, with their customers. So I think that I'm most excited about this work in actually looking at the vision we had in 2007 and seeing it come to fruition in 2018, but be so much more than we would ever imagine because like, when do, when do you get an opportunity to, to build the world you want to see, you know? <laughs> so let's. So one of the things that, that you're doing that's very interesting through the Equitable Internet Initiative is you have multiple ISPs. But um, maybe just give us a, a brief overview of what the ISPs do. Um, let me just give us an overview of how EII works. Sure. So yeah, we're not mesh at all. I think a lot of people. I think there's been a big mesh movement, and that's where people go to when they think of community work. And I think the scale that we were trying to work at didn't work for mesh engineering. Um, the scale, is that because you have too big of a vision and, and you don't have a sense that the mesh would scale to, to meet all of the, the need that you see your group solving? Yeah. So from our experience, so we started off with mesh and we built seven small networks that using mesh technologies and issues that we've been having with those is that they're great for small scale community, like couple blocks. But when you start to like build out like hundreds of customers, uh, at least for us, we recognize that we just get bogged down because the, the difference between mesh and uh, systems and other systems is that the routers are able to speak and talk to every single router on the network. So the more you add, the more information gets like uh, distributed and that that can bog down the actual information passing through the system. So we've learned that sometimes the mesh systems are actually a lot slower and that they can't actually output the bandwidth that we're using. So we purchase wholesale gigabit connections and um, I've yet to sort of find a, a mesh router that can push out more than a gig. And so you just you said you were purchasing um, the gigabit at wholesale, and I think it's worth noting that that this is not uh, no one's donating you these connections, but um, you are in fact paying for um, your connectivity to the internet. Well, we wanted them to be donated, so we saw this <laughs> sure. as a community benefit agreement, and uh, it would have been an amazing community benefit agreement, but 
with some sort of political things happening in the local election, we got sideswiped um, and had to turn it into a business transaction. Um, but since then, we've received many donations um, and are able to scale because of those donations. And I think it's a lot to do with the exposure of, of the work. But yeah, our first uh, purchase was a, like a two-year-long negotiation, <laughs> um, primarily because I don't think people thought that this was this was a normal for a, a consumer to say or a customer to be like, I'm going to buy wholesale and create my own network. Although this is quite normal within the world of the internet, but like how much do you know about the world of the internet? I mean, it's taken me like years to demystify like the structure, who owns what, how information flows. And it's all like very complicated and confusing and not accessible to the general public. So it's been sort of our goal um, within this work to demystify how you actually, how the internet works and where you can fit in to, to do this. Because in purchasing this connection, it really freed us up to, to build these internet service providers. I think if we would have had a donation, it would have looked a little different because so, we were kind of forced to create a business model. Um, and we very well could have, you know, worked along our nonprofit um, line for this time. But because of that business transaction, we had to think about scale. We had to think about sustainability and workforce development and all of that. So I, I like to call it a blessing in disguise, even though it was quite a painful task. <laughs> <laughs> sure. um, but, you know, I say this a lot. I think being a woman in those negotiations and particularly women of color, like I don't know if it would have taken that long for someone like yourself to be able to negotiate these things. So I think part of this work is like, at least I'm hoping um, shows that like, like the different types of technologists that can exist and the different roles they could play and that women and women of color and folks with disabilities and, Elders like all have a seat at the table, which is something or should because they're very important um, perspectives. But I don't think we've seen that in in any sort of telecom world. And I, I mean, I'd be surprised if any of I, I would love if we could call if we had people call in right now. I'd be like, call in if you know how the internet works. And I'd be surprised if we had more than five callers. Relevant to that point, I think it's one of the things that you and I have talked about before is that one of the challenges you have is that you are employing people from these communities who often do not have opportunities in this sector. Um, and you're giving them skills or they're learning skills from you on the job. And now you're finding that that you're in some ways um, being a, a abused, I would say, by other ISPs who are just seeing these trained people and, and they're able to hire, offer them higher wages. And so... Yeah. Um, you know, this is it's one of those things where it is like a beneficial outcome on the whole, but you're the one that's really taken the brunt of it. Yeah, and it's silly. These are the same people that like said no when we first started um, that want now want to be a part of it and sort of poach our people. You're right. It is. It's really interesting to look at because this never was an, a workforce development or pipeline type of situation because I, I can't imagine taking like our stewards and plopping them into some kind of downtown tech company. I think they would crumble and, and die. They would hate it. Um, not because of their, in, they're not capable of doing the work. It's just because the culture is so different. So like when I hear people talk about uh, digital inclusion or, 
or, you know, diversity. I, it's such a problematic, like, framework in my mind because it's sort of like, okay, now we're going to include you into our thing. And it's like, no, like, our, our approach was to say, well, that thing was not built for us, so we're going to build something that is. And that when we build it, we're going to make sure that it, it allows for other people who are facing that same sort of marginalized situation to, to have entry points in. So I'm less interested in feeding our digital stewards into a tech world and more interested of having, creating a tech world in which people can come and be a part of. Because I, I, it's just, it's such a tricky scenario. Like there's so much code switching that I have to do as a human in this world, in this tech world, that I would never put on anybody else. It is taxing. It is anxiety-driven. It is depressing. And so I think along the way, as we build this, it's sort of like learning, like, it's not necessarily building a, a counterculture. I'm, I'm learning from Moss. Um, that's my biggest inspiration at this point. And Moss is one of the most vital plant species of this planet that's created our Earth's atmosphere and is hundreds of millions of years old and it's so small and it, only, it grows where no one can or will. And so I think that's where we're at right now. It's like I want to build a space where people who no one will employ <laughs> can have a, a viable future in doing work that they love for their community, not for a CEO somewhere. Right. Well, I, I I fully support that. I mean, the Institute for Local Self Reliance um, revels in those sorts of that and that approach of of recognizing that um, that your goal shouldn't be necessarily just to figure out how to succeed on the terms of other people, but how your community can thrive uh, on its own terms. And over time, um, you know, rather than trying to bend yourself to fit in the world for other people, let them bend themselves to fit into your world as you build power. Yeah. <laughs> so as we're running out of time, I just want to make sure people have a sense of the nature of the actual networking that you're involved in. Um, so maybe just run us through, you know, you lease these wholesale gigabit connections. What are some of the ways that that gets out to connect people in their homes? The first step was getting these connections. Then there was engineering and figuring out where are they going. So we worked with three different um, community groups and specifically nonprofits. Um, that we're doing digital literacy work already. Um, so we work with Faith in Action in Southwest Detroit, WNUC radio station, which is community radio station in the north end Detroit, and then Boulevard Harambe and Island View on the east side of Detroit. Each of those either have like a fab lab or some kind of like a radio show they do beat making or and in Southwest they had like uh, youth entrepreneurship and co-op development. Um, and so they were already doing some kind of digital work and were interested in this. Um, and so then we engineered to get it to their location. So, which was, you know, very interesting because some of the terrain was like really easy, a straight shot where you would do a point to point from downtown where our, where our uh, back hall was to like the North end or something. And it's just a, a wireless connection. And then on the, on the West side, uh, where the buildings are a lot lower than the trees because when you're when you're dealing with wireless, it's like dealing with radio waves. So there are obstructions and things, waves get absorbed. So you have to, there's a lot of engineering around that. So there was all this organizing around where's a rooftop that we can go to and then get it to the other, to the location that we need. 
So along this way, along the process um, to get folks started is that you have to sort of organize uh, rooftop real estate, is what I like to call it. Um, and that's where our specialty is, is we teach organizing. Uh, a lot of people could just do a business transaction and rent the rooftop, but we've been working with community groups and churches in particular because they all have steeples. And looking at this as like, how do we exchange, like, if you would like some internet for exchange of use of your rooftop and there's all this sort of organizing that happens in the neighborhoods that we uh, support the neighborhood organizations in doing. Um, from there, we train a trainer with our curriculum. So our curriculum is uh, quite robust. It is uh, 32 lesson plans, I think, that are each like three hours long. So it's a good three-month three program. And they do all the recruiting, and we, we just train the trainers and support the trainers in learning. And then once they're done, within the class, they actually create a map and they do all the surveying to understand where internet is needed, how people would use it, um, so that they can then build a network based off of need. Once the class is done, we've hired five, five stewards from each group to then take those plans that the class started and then build them out. Those stewards, they've been hired for two years now. They work part-time and their job is to sort of take the infrastructure that we've built, um, which is the point-to-point -to, -point, to the um, community org, and then we've worked with them to build a distribution network that creates a zone, and then the stewards take that connection and they bring it into the home. And it's all done wirelessly, and some of the apartment buildings, there might be some cables and stuff like that, but we sort of have three different layers and the stewards are responsible for finding the customers. They're responsible for hooking them up and then dealing with any of the payments if they do that and also setting the payments. So our scale of payment is different within each neighborhood. Some of them are zero to $20 a month. Some of them are zero to $50 a month. It just really depends on the, the economics of the neighborhood. Um, and now built out all of our networks to 50 homes and our uh, stewards are currently expanding and working towards a business plan. I think they each want to like eventually serve uh, about 250 people for each home by 2021. And if they do, they will make a profit and be self-sustainable. So I really look forward to this phase of the work, which is just seeing like once you've seeded it, like where will it go? As I understand it, one of the other customers isn't just people in their homes, but uh, businesses for some of these neighborhood ISPs. Definitely. So the businesses play a huge role in helping us with the distribution. For instance, in Southwest, there's a business called Mango Nadas that everyone hangs out at and goes to. And they support it in having like community events and they gave their rooftop up. So like the businesses play a big role, not just in as a customer, but also as an organizing partner. And also churches. Like, it's funny, all of the three groups that we work with are all church-based. And I realized this a couple of years down the line. I was like, why do we keep working? Like, where, what is this? Why do we keep working with churches? Like, it's so much. And I'm like, oh, because they have steeples. <laughs> and they have people. <laughs> and they very much recognize it. They're great human networks in addition to the steeples. So anywhere in the world you go, you'll find um, marginalized communities often are um, organizing around uh, some kind of faith issue. Um, you know, um, it's just uh, throughout history, it's just been very common. 
Right. <laughs> well, the last thing I wanted to to make a note of is to is to thank you, um, because I certainly hear from groups around the country that either have studied what you're doing, have gone there and learned from you, or have studied from people who learned what they were doing by going and, and visiting with you. And so, you know, this is something that over the years has really been contributing to these bottom-up solutions. And I think that's it's terrific what a commitment that you've had to sharing your lessons. So I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but I wanted to thank you for that, that uh, approach. It's a little overwhelming, but it's also very inspiring to see the movement to take off and to see people um, believe that they can shape infrastructure. That's something that keeps us going. And, um, you know, our model is just one. It may or may not work in your place. But the one thing that we've, we've learned that kind of goes across the board is this idea of having, ensuring that community organizing is a large part of building infrastructure and it's not just based in tech or tech heads, and that there needs to be a diversity of people at the table to build these systems. So if there's one thing folks take away from our model is that, I hope, and knowing that like we can't keep repeating sort of the same systems within a homogenous setting, but it definitely requires a radical rethinking of need, accessibility, not just in like getting access to something, but like people's bodies being able to access doing this work. Yeah, and that like its elders are very capable as well as youth and that the combination of all of them combined create like a, the ecosystem or the world that you're trying to build and that that requires patience. This work takes time and love. And so if you're going to go for it, make sure you have those two things. That's a that's very good advice to wrap up with, and I, I and I would just say that um, you know your example of the two years to negotiate the the wholesale agreement uh, is a testament to that because people don't always appreciate. Oh, okay, well it took two years. That's a long time, but you know I'll bet that that eighteen twenty months into that you were thinking, are we is this has this been a waste of time? Is this ever going to end? Are we going to like nail this down or not? You know, there's uncertainty is a killer, and when people are, are having that uncertainty, I think it's really helpful. To to be able to look out and say, uh, look at what the um, you know look at what these folks at the Detroit Community Technology Project have done. They got through it. We can do it too. So um, I think it's really important what you've done. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Diana. That was Christopher with Diana New Sarah. She took some time out of her schedule to share information about the Detroit Community Technology Project. Learn more about the program at alliedmedia.org DCTP. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. And while you're there, take a moment to donate. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 323 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.